Good morning, Pine Lake Covenant Church. Uh, my name is Peter, and I work for the conference office. And uh, it's really my honor to be with you today and to share something that I hope will be helpful for you and your faith um, individually, for your um, life as a church body, and especially um, as you look towards the future. I think you have an opportunity to um, come together in a deliberate way and strategize and open yourself up to uh, new things that God may want to do in you and through you uh, as you uh, be church in such a time as this. My great value to you is that I'm not you and I have an outsider's perspective and I have a view that's um, not as invested in a specific church and its agendas, but uh, a view that is informed uh, more broadly as I work with uh, many different churches and leaders and think about uh, how to be helpful um, uh, to these churches. And so I hope that that can happen today. Uh, the title of the talk today is In Such a Way. And I get that phrase from today's passage, which is Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 to 16. So let me go ahead and read that. And right after I read that, I'm going to say a quick prayer as we dive into it. Matthew 5, verse 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God, thank you for this truth that we get to think about together today. I pray that this passage about light would shed light uh, on our hearts and our minds and help us to experience your presence as we come together as we enter into these truths. God, help me to do my part and uh, be a catalyst uh, for all that are listening. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The key phrase here that I want us to think about is this little phrase, in such a way. It's a curious little phrase, but I think it is uh, really worth our investigation. Light is light. It does what light does. Uh, but there is a way to do it such that it gives glory to God, that such that it um, causes in people who interact or experience this light to give glory to God who is in heaven. And this, this idea is really, um, I think, relevant in today's culture because I think we can easily make the argument that people... Now, in the culture, who experience the light of the church do not necessarily instinctually glorify God who is in heaven. In fact, I think we could even argue further and say uh, some uh, non-Christians and people in the culture, uh, not only do they not glorify God, but they actually curse God and um, maybe turn away from God and maybe even lose their <clears throat> faith in God altogether. And so it's really, I think, uh, worthwhile for us to ask, how can we be Christians? How can we be a church in such a way that when people experience the light of who we are or what we are or how we carry ourselves, it naturally that the normal and natural reaction on their part, whoever they is, is to glorify God who is in heaven. And I think uh, this passage also implies that that reaction is possible, that it's possible for people to experience the church and experience Christians, experience you if you are somebody who claims to be a Christian in such a way that it draws out of them this natural and normal reaction to glorify God. Um, 
I think we probably have some stories where that's happened. But in general, I think Christians are getting a really bad reputation today. And it's been happening for years, but I think it's getting, it's getting worse. And um, I don't know if you saw, but uh, the latest round of uh, Pew Research that came out really pointed to this uh, trend. It, it said that the number of people who identify as the nuns uh, are increasing. People who don't believe in God, people who don't affiliate with a church, who don't uh, want anything to do with uh, such a label as Christian. And so um, for Pine Lake, uh, it's really an opportunity for you all to ask the question, if we are going to be a church, how can we be a church? What is in such a way mean for us? So I want to present a way to think about an answer or at least respond to this question today, and that'll be the sermon. And the way I want to do that is I want to talk about this passage a little bit, and then I want to try to uh, illuminate an answer to the question that's asked in verse 16. What does this in such a way mean? And I want to do that by looking at an old uh, piece of writing that I came across a few years ago. Um, it's written by a Christian uh, of the first century. So this is before... Uh, the scriptures were canonized before we had sort of what we know today as the Bible. This is when Paul's letters, for example, were still being circulated as letters and being read to different groups of Christians. And the reason this letter was written is because a Roman official named Diognetus uh, was really curious about this new way of uh, existing that was emerging uh, in his time. The church grew uh, in 50 AD, they had 5,000 Christians. And by 300 AD, that's 250 years, they had 5 million Christians. So there was a kind of phenomenon that Diognetus was uh, witnessing in real time. And he was wanting to know, what is this way uh, that it's emerging? And so um, uh, this Christian apologist or Christian is explaining uh, what Christians are to this Roman official. And I think in this letter, uh, there is uh, there are some really interesting responses to this question. What does in such a way mean for us today? Uh, this um, letter is really encouraging to me because it reminds me that we don't have to reinvent a way to be a Christian in such a time as today. Uh, but really, we have to return, remember, uh, to be renewed, to be Christians the way we always were called to be. Nothing has changed. And the fact that uh, we are less effective today isn't pointing to a culture that's changing, but it's really pointing to the fact that Christians have changed their way of being. And if we can return to how we were always called to be, how God always meant us to be, what his original design was, then actually we can light, uh, let our light shine in such a way that draws out from the culture um, a reaction that wants to glorify God who is in heaven. So that's how we're going to do this today. Uh, but let's go into this passage first. You are the light of the world. Uh, so that this is Jesus talking about Christians, about his disciples, people who wear this label, people who make this claim. If you are here today and you wear this label as a Christian, what Jesus is saying is you are the light of the world. That's a statement. That's not an aspirational statement. That's not a command. It's not saying what we should be. What Jesus is saying is that's what you are. You are the light of the world. And then he goes on to explain what this means. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. So to pause there, Jesus is saying, if you are the light of the world, and you are, 
then light does what light does. You don't have to make light do anything. You All you have to do is position it to succeed, and it'll succeed by virtue of the fact that it's light, right? So a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, a city set on a hill, that was a common phrase in Jesus' time, and it meant to be an example, right? So Jesus is saying, uh, if you are an example, it can't be hidden, right? That's why you are an example, by virtue of the fact that it's not hidden. And so because you are the light of the world, you are going to be an example, but you have to be set up to be an example. So if you light a lamp, which is light, and you put it under a basket or you hide it under a covering, then light can't do what light naturally does. But if you put it on a lamp stand, you set it up to succeed, you set it up to be able to do what it normally and naturally and by design will do, then it will give light to all who are in the house. Notice, the light doesn't have to try very hard to be light, but it does have to be set up to succeed. Then it'll just do it, just do it, all by itself. It doesn't have to exert a lot of effort. It just has to exist as it is. If that doesn't make sense yet, look at verse 16. Let your light shine. Now, this is really another important phrase. Let your light shine is very different than shine your light. And that's what Jesus has been talking about in verse 14 and 15. Let your light shine is different than shine your light. Um, I've been pulled over many times. Uh, I'm 47, so that means I've been driving for over two decades. And so I've been pulled over quite a number of times, right? And uh, a lot of those times, uh, it happens um, in, at nighttime. And so, you know, those uh, famous blue lights are in my rearview mirror. Uh, my heart begins to uh, beat quite loudly and quickly and uh, with a pit in my stomach and jitters uh, in my fingers, I pull over uh, to the right side of the road. And then a police officer uh, eventually emerges from the vehicle and walks over to me holding, uh, you know, what is now a famous uh, piece of equipment, the mag light, right? And as he uh, is walking over to me, he holds that light in such a way and the light is shining because he's not going to hide it under a basket. He's not going to try to hide that light. The light has a purpose. So he's going to set it up to do what light does. But how does he do that? He doesn't let that light shine. He shines it in my face. And my natural and normal reaction to that way of shining the light is to turn away. It's blinding. And it creates a certain reaction in me. Now, I don't move towards it. I move away from it. It doesn't comfort me. It strikes fear in me. It doesn't empower me, but it makes me feel powerless. Right? It's a kind of weapon uh, that he's using against me. He's weaponizing that light. In other words, if we let our light shine, it has an attractive effect. There's something that draws me towards that light, like moth to a flame when light is just allowed to shine, it has an attractive effect. But when you shine your light, then it has a repulsive effect. And that's really the idea in verse 16, to let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There is a way a way to let your light shine that causes people around you to naturally and by their choice, almost like they can't help it, they can see your good works because there is a way you're shining your light, which is not shining it at all. It's letting that light shine and it illuminates your good works. And that manner 
of letting your light shine and illuminating the good works that you're already doing, it causes people to give glory to God instead of cursing God or not believing in God or turning away from God or becoming a nun, uh, as the Pew Research shows. And the question that we want to try to get at today is what is this in such a way that Pine Lake can begin to think about? And I'm not saying you're not already doing that. Uh, based on everything I know, I know that you um, have been doing that and you've been trying to figure out how to do that and you're scratching your heads going, how do we do this uh, in our time, in our culture, in our geolocation today, right here now? And given that there's this natural uh, transition, this opportunity before us, uh, we're going to be hiring a new lead pastor. We're going to be sort of doing a reset by virtue of a transition. Uh, how can we even leverage this opportunity more so that we can let our light shine in such a way that causes our good works to be illuminated um, in such a way that causes people all around us to not be repulsed by us, but to be drawn to us? And in such a way that causes them to turn their eyes and their uh, minds uh, towards God and glorify God rather than feeling repulsed by God. Really what we're asking is, how can we be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian today? So uh, in order to answer this question, uh, I want to look at uh, this letter that I was referring to. Okay, let me set up the letter for a second. Just because you are something doesn't mean that you know how to be that something. A couple of examples. So when I got married, I instantly became a husband. I was a husband suddenly. But just because now that label applied to me truthfully, legally, that's what I was. That's what I became. Doesn't mean that I know what it means to be a husband. It doesn't mean I even understand the definition of the word. All it means is that I am that. But it takes a lifetime and more probably to really understand what being a husband entails. That's the letter of the law. I am that. But to fulfill the meaning, the spirit of that law, I have to really work at it. I have to get deliberate about learning and practicing and having enough experiences to know how to be a good one. Right? Um, I also, at some point in my life, became a student. Uh, I went to school, I had a backpack, and I had books, and I had teachers, I had classmates. It doesn't mean that I knew how to be a student, right? I had to learn how to learn, and that's also taking me a lifetime. I um, am now beginning my fourth year as a doctoral student in psychology, and it's taken me these last three years to learn how to be a student at this level, at this time, in this context, learning this subject matter. I feel like after three years, I'm just beginning to learn how to be a student. I thought I knew how to be one, but now when I think about it, I really resisted being a student for most of my life. But today, I really enjoy being a student. I love learning and it's really life-giving to me. I feel like I'm beginning to get it, but it's taken me decades of being a student to just figure out how to be a student. And in this specific program, it's taken me three years to learn how to really be a student uh, at this level. You have examples, right? Just because you are that thing doesn't mean you know how to be that thing. And what I'm trying to get at is this, just because you are a Christian doesn't mean you know how to be a Christian. Just because you are light and you are, it does not mean that you automatically know how best to be light. It doesn't mean that you know how to let your light shine. 
It means that probably there's been way too many times when we have been shining our light in such a way or many different ways that our good works actually got obscured. That maybe people who are not Christians have been stumbling over us and they never even got the opportunity to stumble on Christ. And maybe it's that people weren't even rejecting Christ, but they were just rejecting you or me, because we didn't know how to be a Christian. And they never even got the chance to see the good works and glorify God because we weren't illuminating those works properly. And so I think it really uh, makes sense, given what this text is saying and given our life experience about the fact that we don't know how to be something that we actually are, that we uh, become learners again and humble ourselves and ask the question, what does being a Christian mean? How can we be a Christian? How can we let our light shine in such a way? And if you've never really thought about this, why would you know how to do this? Because all of us have sort of been have been functioning as bad examples to each other. And so you become a Christian and then you look at other Christians and you, and we just sort of do what they've always done. And just because they've always been doing it doesn't mean they know how to do it well. And so just start, go all the way back to the beginning. When this whole idea of being a Christian was invented, right? It was, suddenly a thing. It was not a thing before, and then it was a thing. And then all these people were invited to be this new, brand new thing. And uh, there was sort of a way to do it right. And that's what all these uh, letters were for. Paul was instructing um, the early church how to be Christians. And Peter was instructing the persecuted church how to be a curse- persecuted uh Uh, scattered bodies of Christians all around uh, the globe uh, because they were that, but they didn't necessarily know how to be that. So there's, I think, no shame in not knowing, uh, but there is a responsibility to learn. And so let's go all the way back to the beginning and see if we can gain some insight about how the first century Christians were. Okay. Okay. Um, one more thing to set up the letters before I read it and make comments along the way. Um, the Romans, they were uh, a people that consider themselves to be what they call the first race. Uh, have you heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Uh, that phrase is referring to uh, the culture that prevailed during uh, the Roman Empire. And what that meant uh, is that the Romans practiced uh, a culture that we would call today syncretism or amalgamation. And what that meant was you can be anything, you can do anything, you can believe anything. None of that really mattered as long as your first allegiance was to Rome. And so all roads lead to Rome. Uh, for example, today, um, I would say that we are kind of uh, a syncretistic culture uh, in the sense that most Americans are uh, consumeristic. And because we're consumeristic and because we are individualistic, we can label ourselves Christians and we can call ourselves Christians and believe we are Christians and actually be Christians. But really underneath that, what we are really serving, the destination that the road of Christianity is leading towards is still consumerism. And so uh, the way we practice uh, church. Uh, we say we're Christians. That's why we have church. And being a church is a way to express our Christian faith. But underneath that, even deeper than our Christian faith in some ways, is our consumeristic uh, way of living life as Americans. And so we come to church and we have expect consumeristic expectations. And we judge the sermon. We judge the service. We have critical Uh, consumeristic thoughts uh, in our minds and the conversations we have after church might be more consumeristic than Christian. 
uh, we may, what did you think about it? Did you like it? Well, I didn't like this and I didn't like that. I love this. And a Christian might, uh, somebody who didn't practice consumerism might say, why does what you like, what you prefer, why does that matter? Weren't you really focused on your own worship of God? Your, your own sense of gratitude and worship and awe? Uh, weren't you focused on how to love the people that were in the room or sitting next to you uh, instead of whether you liked them or not, whether you preferred one preacher over the other? So we can be Christians, but really what we're serving is consumerism. And so that's what Rome was. They were a syncretistic culture, and they didn't care if you were a Jew as long as your allegiance was ultimately to Rome. They didn't care um, what what preferences or uh, what other cultural um, you know trends you subscribe to, as long as when push came to shove, uh, you loved Rome above all, and there was a Roman way of life that um, you had to love in your heart of hearts. And so Rome was uh, the first race. Um, now, different from this, uh, there were the Jews. And the Jews, were what uh, they existed as what the Romans called the second race. And the second race uh, were the isolationists. And the Jews uh, didn't mingle with uh, the citizens of Rome. They didn't adopt their way of life, but they also uh, were sort of um, safe. And Romans didn't feel threatened by the Jews because uh, they were easily identifiable. They lived their own life. They didn't interact with Rome culturally. And so they can be easily spotted. And if some flare-ups or threats happen, then they can be squashed because there they were uh, isolating themselves. And that was a second way of being. Now, the Romans began to call Christians the third race. And the reason they called Christians the third race is they weren't really sure what was happening, which is why uh, Diognetus asked for this description. Um, that's why this letter was written. But they began to observe that Christians were not syncretists. They weren't sort of living this uh, all roads lead to Rome way of life. And they weren't being isolationist. They weren't sort of separating themselves out, but rather they were intermingling with Rome. They lived and dressed and talked and um, carried about as if they were Romans, as if they served Rome. And in many ways they did. But they also got the sense that these Christians, these people who observed the way, as they were called, um, they didn't uh, feel like they were of Rome, even though they served Rome. And so uh, it made the Romans curious about what these Christians were. And so Diognetus asks this Christian uh, to explain, and, and this Christian apologist wrote a 12-page letter uh, to Diognetus to describe the first church, this third race or third way. Um, and this is the way that Christians lived for um, the first 300 years. And so from 50 AD to 5,000, um, with 5,000 Christians, by 300 AD, the church had grown to over 5 million Christians. And so this way of existing was really attractive. There was a, a magnetic effect. And this is really the opposite of the trend we're seeing in America today, where we're not growing uh, in this, at this pace, but we're actually shrinking at this pace. And we're sort of becoming an almost post-Christian uh, country. And I think so that itself just invites us to study this phenomenon and uh, ask the question, how did they grow? Why did they grow? And as we looked at in Matthew, uh, the answer is they let their light shine in such a way that people were drawn to the church. And when they saw the church, they interacted and experienced the church, it caused them to glorify God in heaven. And they themselves became Christians. And as you know, even Rome itself became 
Christian. Uh, these Christians believed that they were living in the eighth day of creation or recreation. And the way they lived in this eighth day uh, of creation was by creating new Christians, creating a new way of being, this third way of being. And they believed the way you do that is by influencing and shaping society as an invisible force. Their goal was not to make um, America Christian again, so to speak, but to make Christians Christian again so that Christians can then influence invisibly um, uh, America through this third way of being Christians. So, okay, enough introduction. I'm going to read this. Uh, I'm going to read uh, portions of the letter, and you can Google this and get to the uh, entire 12 pages and read it if you'd like. And it is a fascinating read because you get to read the Bible before it was the Bible. You'll see how this Christian apologist uses uh, bits and pieces of um, the letters that were floating around, um, but not as quoting scripture, but just quoting Paul's letters. So that's just kind of fascinating. So let me start reading um, my redacted version of this, and I'll make comments along the way. There we go. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. Okay, first comment here. Notice that the Christians, the first century Christians, they didn't believe in having a, forming a Christian nation. Okay, that's first. Second, they did not believe in having a different language. Um, I got to tell you, I hear Christianese being spoken all the time. I just got done uh, participating in a church planners assessment center this week, and we were um, privy to lots of sermons that these uh, aspiring church planners were preaching uh, as part of their assessment process. And most of these sermons were just filled with Christianese. And I realized that if I wasn't a Christian, I would not understand what the heck they're talking about. And I wouldn't even care because they didn't seem to care about the language I speak. They weren't trying to communicate with me. They were just communicating to their own kind. And so I felt really decentralized and unimportant and invisible. Like I don't matter. And uh, But these first century Christians... Um, they didn't believe in having their own country. They didn't believe in having their own language. And they didn't believe in having their own customs. I mean, think about that. Think about all the ways that um, Christianity has infiltrated our country. And we really um, enjoy the power and privilege uh, that Christ as Christians in this country. And the first century Christians just didn't think about their faith in that way. Um, going on, the course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. And so these first century Christians really did not try to stand out and practice their Christian Christianity with their faith in Christ in a way that uh, contradicted culture. And so if maybe they were living in today's time, they probably would have had social media accounts. They would have dressed as other people dressed. They would have talked like other people. Uh, it was really hard to distinguish them from others. This is why they were considered to be invisible. Not that they were didn't exist, but they just blended in, in all these really, um, I think, uh, cultural ways. Tim Keller has this great phrase that um, he repeats many times. Tim Keller was a, a pastor uh, of a Presbyterian church movement in the New York City area. 
And uh, he says the gospel always moves away from power. Right? And so we see how the Christians, the first century Christians, they weren't trying to be powerful, right, in, in a cultural uh, or legal sense. And so they were sort of naturally uh, being empowered then by the gospel. That's kind of how I interpret what uh, this letter, this portion of the letter is saying. Okay, but it goes on. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. So they understand themselves to be traveling. So, you know, when you travel, you don't rearrange the furniture. You don't try to, I mean, you may not even unpack your clothes. You can just live out of your suitcase. So there was that sort of dual way of living on earth. So they know they are citizens of earth, but they also knew that they were citizens of heaven. And so the uh, author goes on, as citizens, they share in all things with others. And yet, so there is a yet, and yet endure all things as if foreigners, meaning they didn't live their life leading with their rights. I hear Christians talking about their rights. You know, this is sort of really important to American Christians, it seems, and as Americans, we're sort of rights-oriented. That's part of our, I think, syncretistic value is rights. We're consumeristic and we're rights-oriented. We're power-oriented. And as Christians, uh, we ought not be, is what I hear this letter saying. Every foreign land is to them as their native country. And yet, every land of their birth as land of strangers. And so, yes, this is their country. They care about this country, and yet they live in it also as strangers. Um, again, quoting Tim Keller again, he has a um, sort of really good thoughts about eschatology or how the world is going to end. And uh, in studying Revelations, he says, you notice that uh, earth doesn't go to heaven. That's not what Revelation says. Revelation says that actually earth comes down. I mean, heaven actually comes down to earth. And so, um, and this is the phrase, the citizens of heaven make the very best citizens of earth. Meaning if you really believe that heaven is coming down to earth, then you're going to do all that you can to love the earth and to beautify the earth and to make the earth as sustainable as possible. There isn't um, a conflict of interest between uh, going to heaven and living on earth because heaven is actually coming to earth. And maybe an application or implication of that means we do care about recycling. We do care about climate change. And we do care about being a steward or caretaker of planet earth, the material earth, because uh, spiritual or immaterial heaven actually is coming here. And there is going to be an eternity here on earth. So why wouldn't we care for it? Okay, um, going on. They marry as do all. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Okay, I don't mean to get political, but it is here in the text, so I want to mention it. They do things like getting married and having children. This is what people did. This is normal and natural behavior uh, for citizens of earth and citizens of Rome, but they did do things slightly differently also, right? They didn't make this a power issue. They didn't make this a political issue. But in their own practice, they didn't destroy their offspring. Infanticide or killing uh, babies was common practice back then. And uh, you would give birth. And if the baby wasn't desirable for whatever reason, uh, it was normal and natural to destroy that baby. But Christians for their own reasons, for themselves, did not do that to their own babies. They believed in the inherent value of life. They did believe that uh, we are knit together in our mother's womb. We, they did believe in the scriptures, which says that God has a plan for us. So believing in the sanctity of infant life, they didn't destroy it. I don't want to say more than that. You have to do with that what you have to do, uh, but there it is, okay? 
um, and how they practiced that belief, I imagine was so different to how it is politicized and practiced and weaponized and wielded today. Okay, reading on. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They did not believe in sex outside of marriage. Just as scripture teaches, there was this practice back uh, in, in, in Rome to have um, sex in different ways and the Christians believed. What Christians believed was that you don't have premarital sex because the way you got married was by having sex. Um, actually, Dr. Gordon Hugenberger of Park Street Church and a professor at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary where I went to um, grad school for my um, theology degree, um, he uh, shows from the scriptures that uh, Jews and Christians did not believe that you can actually have premarital sex because the way you uh, became married was by having sex. And so the phrase premarital sex, as we use it today, didn't exist in the Bible at all. It doesn't exist in the Bible, uh, but it's uh, sometimes we translate it or understand it that way. But it was a contradiction in terms because you couldn't do that. If you had sex, then you were married. Uh, so we uh, see this, for example, in Paul. Uh, he's giving instruction to uh, the Corinthian church, I think it was, when he says, don't have sex with a prostitute because uh, don't become one with a prostitute. And that was what they understood, that if you have sex with someone, you were one with that person. And this is what the Christians themselves practiced. Uh, Roman culture allowed not, uh, people not to have a common to allow people to have a common bed. But the Christians said, no, we will be friends with all. That's what have a common table means. But they did not believe or practice having a common bed. And so there is um, a way, a such a way that they practice this belief, but they practiced it in such a way that caused people to see this work, good work, um, and give glory to God rather than um, feel like Christians are judgmental or oppressive or prudes or, um, you know, not science loving or not cool. This wasn't the conclusion they drew. The way Christians practiced sexual sanctity when observed caused people who didn't practice that or believe that caused them to give glory to God. So now you have to ask the question, how did they do that? What was that such a way? Okay, they go on. Uh, the letter goes on. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. That's so powerful. I mean... I have to think about it, you know, and really examine my own life. But how did they do that? How did they obey the laws, but really went beyond the laws to fulfill the spirit of the law by their lives? Okay, going on. They love all men and are persecuted by all. Now, I want to pause here for a second uh, because a hot topic uh, these days has been human sexuality uh, in the covenant. And... Um, I'm not going to, I don't want us to turn our attention to the positional angle on this issue, but I want to ask the question, what is the message that the church has been sending to non-Christians about whether we love all people or not? And how have we come to do that? How come the way we have communicated, the way we have practiced, our beliefs have caused people to get the message, the signal that we are actually hateful rather than loving. How come that, how come uh, if you uh, look at the statistics of trans teens who are homeless, the far majority of them commit suicide? And how come when you dig deeper, you learn that almost all of those teens who are trans, who are homeless, 
are not homeless by choice, but because they've been uh, pushed out in some way. And the ones that commit suicide, we learn most of them come from evangelical homes. Because somehow trans teens who are uh, birthed into Christian homes are getting the message that they are not loved. I don't have answers today, but I do want to ask the question, how come this first century church, they love all men and are persecuted by all? But yet the church today, um, this message is flipped. We don't love all and we are the persecutors of all is the message that we are sending. And this is what the culture feels about the church today. We are not letting our light shine in such a way that the culture is getting the message that we love all. In fact, they're getting the opposite message, that we love just ourselves, people who are just like us. Okay, um, finishing up here then. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Think about this. When they are punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. It's like Christians back then, they were looking at something else. They weren't looking at their circumstances. They weren't even looking at how they were being treated or how they felt or what their experience was like primarily. They were really keeping their eyes on a different prize, right? And, and think about this. The people who were doing the persecuting, they were unable to assign a reason for their hatred of the Christians. They hated the Christians, but they didn't know why. I think today people who hate Christians know why they hate Christians. We've given them ample reason because we're not letting our light shine. We're shining our light in such a way that causes them to feel repulsed by us. To sum up all in one word, what the soul is in the body that are Christians in the world. The soul is dispersed through all the members of the body and Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, yet is not of the body. And Christians dwell in the world, yet are not of the world. The invisible soul is guarded by the visible body and Christians are known indeed to be in the world, but their godliness remains invisible. I think if I had to... Um, say one summary sentence about why Christians uh, are not able to let their light shine in such a way today as the first century Christians were able to do uh, back then. It would be this idea that we want to be in the world and we want to be of the world and we want to be Christians. And I think this is where the rub is. I know that I am in the world, that I can't avoid. But I am called to not be of the world. <clears throat> I'm not called to be an isolationist. I'm not called to be syncretistic. I'm called to live my life as the third race, to be in the world, but not of the world. And that is the key to letting my light shine in such a way that causes all people to glorify God who is in heaven. And yet that's the price I'm not willing to pay. I want to be in the world and of the world and be a Christian. And I have come to the conclusion myself that as long as and to the extent that I want to be of the world, to that extent, I cannot let my light shine. My light will not naturally shine. It's being 
set not on a hill. It's being hidden under uh, a basket. And therefore, the light is impeded. It is blocked by my uh, actual value system. It's blocked by my lifestyle. It's blocked by my flesh, the body, as this letter calls it. I'm not living my life according to my soul, but according to my body. And so I think this is the question uh, for you. If we try to solve this problem without addressing um, how we actually live our personal lives and then collectively uh, as a church, we're not going to do better than our individual lives. And so uh, I think that's the question that I want to leave you with. What would it look like for you, Christian, for you to be in the world, but not of the world? What would it look like for you to be a city set on a hill, to not be a light that is placed under a basket, but to be put on a lampstand so that that light, by virtue of the fact that it is light, will simply shine all on its own and illuminate and be attractive and be interesting and be different. And it causes people to come close. And then once they see the illuminated good works, then they will um, give glory to God. And so I think this is a hard question, but I think it's, it's a, a question worth asking. And so I want to end uh, my talk with that. As Pine Lake Church, you have this opportunity now uh, to... Um, uh, to sort of reset and uh, ask some harder questions and move towards uh, the helpful and truthful answers. Uh, I ask you to think about some of these things. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I think this is uh, beautiful, um, this truth about the light and how if we just let the light shine and do its thing, it can have such a powerful effect on all those around it. Uh, we do confess that uh, this is going to cost us everything. And in faith, we know, intellectually, we know that we will gain all the more. Uh, but it is a faith step to um, start living that way. Help us to draw inspiration from the first century church. Uh, but more than that, help us to draw power from the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, uh, I uh, entrust Pine Lake Covenant Church to you, and I ask you to um, help it to wrestle uh, with this truth and recognize uh, what you are wanting them to understand and come to terms with it and um, uh, feel a sense of hope as they move towards this new, more effective way of being a church in today's time. Thank you for my time with them, and I pray for them uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.